Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OG Rob Silver, and today we will be talking about what right now is the early candidate for fight of the year, the WBC IBF and WBO light heavyweight champion Arthur Benabiev in a tremendous battle versus Anthony Yard this past Saturday from the Wembley Arena in London. We will talk about that fight. We will then have another Q&A session and we will finish the podcast with my historical overview of my number 10th greatest fighter, the 10th greatest fighter, in my opinion, of the last 45 years, the greatest Mexican fighter I've ever seen, Salvador Sanchez. But before we begin, in the next couple of days, I'll be recording my first Patreon podcast on the life and times of Muhammad Ali, a 10-part monthly Patreon podcast only, meaning you have to pay $5 a month to hear this bonus podcast on the Patreon uh, segment of the Fight Game Media. Go to the uh, patreon.com, type in Fight Game Media. Also, you can go to the link in the description of this podcast, and it will take you straight to Patreon, where you could uh, sign up and subscribe. $5 a month. Not only do you hear my Series on Muhammad Ali But for you wrestling fans There's exclusive coverage on AEW WWE New Japan Pro Wrestling All Japan Pro Wrestling Impact Anything professional wrestling My colleagues at the Fight Game Media Network cover And you'll hear uh, exclusive uh, coverage on professional wrestling And of course MMA, Bellator and UFC I don't know about power slap, but we 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 don't follow the circuit tax here on um fight game media. So yeah, I will begin the series in the next couple of days. I'll be recording my first episode, and that will be March twenty fifth, nineteen sixty five, from Lewiston, Maine. Muhammad Ali's rematch versus Sonny Liston, the Phantom Punch fight. I will talk about what was going on at that time, according to what my father told me throughout the years before he passed. The political climate of the United States What was going on in Muhammad Ali's life And a lot was going on Because the month before that fight happened One of his closest friends that ever lived Malcolm X was murdered We'll talk all about that On the podcast On the Patreon podcast Now On to this past Saturday night's Tremendous fight This is one of the best light heavyweight fights Of the last, of, the, of this entire uh Century of the 21st century This is right up there with Chad Dawson's incredible first fight With uh No it wasn't Chad Dawson My bad Antonio Tarver's first fight With uh, Glenn Johnson Which was a great great light heavyweight fight I would put this right up there with it Arthur Benabier versus Anthony Yard And Benabier is now eight, uh, Is now 38 years old And his defense, like I mentioned, I predicted a, a knockout between five and seven. I was round, one round off. Once again, I'm correcting my prediction of who wins the fight. And by how he wins it, I was just a round short. And ladies and gentlemen, for those who have been listening to my podcast for the last year, you see that 95 to 97% of the time, I'm correcting my predictions. Now, I wouldn't bet on my predictions. 
Because I don't believe in gambling. All that bet online shit, I don't believe in. But you know what? I'm going to backtrack on that. One of the uh, betting sites are a uh, sponsor of this pot, of this entire Fight Game Media feed. So I'm going to backtrack. We all have willpower. It's up to you guys if you want to bet. All right? It's free. You know, you have that freedom in this country. Me? I'm not a betting man, but why I'm not a betting man is because I have an addictive personality. It runs in my family. It's in my DNA. My father, my beloved son, both were unfortunately uh, addicted to uh, things that uh, help bring them down at a young age. Uh, I don't. I don't believe that. I've never drank. I've never smoked. I've never gambled. I believe in the only thing I'm addicted to are. Slow jams Whoever I'm dating at a time My lady at a time And if you see a picture of her You realize why I'm addicted to her And boxing That's all I'm addicted to I don't follow team sports anymore Alright Let's get to this fight First three rounds Yardy landed a lot And he was moving And he was jabbing a lot And he was catching better BF With left hooks and right crosses Off that jab And he was countering Better be off wild right hands with his own left hook. First three rounds could have gone either way. You could have had Yard win all three rounds. You could have had Better Be have win all three rounds. All three rounds were action-packed and very hard to score. Already we're off to a rousing start. Then in the fourth round, Better BF stuns Yard. Yard comes back. Fifth round, they both stagger each other. Sixth round, it looked like Better BF was beginning to get the best of Yard, but Yard stayed in there. Seventh round, more back and forth. And after seven rounds, I had Better BF up by one round, but I think two of the three judges had Yard up by one round. And you know what? I couldn't argue it because there was a lot of back and forth, and Yard hit Better BF more than any other fighter I've ever seen. Any other fighter I've ever seen. Better BF's defense is gone. But early in the eighth round, Better BF landed a double right cross that staggered and dropped Yard. Yard got up and he was out on his feet. Um, the referee gave him the benefit of the doubt, but there was no need for them to continue. Yard, he came back and got dropped and it was over. Eighth round knockout for Arthur Better BF. He's now 18-0, 19-0, I believe, with 19 knockouts. Or 18-0 with 18 knockouts. One of those two records. But, um... Tough win, tough, exciting fight. Right now, my choice for fight of the year, but it's only early. We're not even in February as I record this. I'm recording this on the evening of, no, actually after midnight on January 30th, late Monday night, early Tuesday morning. So, ladies and gentlemen, the only fight I want to see better be of is with Dimitri Baval. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't want to see better be versus Callum Smith. I don't want to see better be versus Canelo Alvarez. I don't want to see Bavol in the rematch versus Canelo Alvarez. I want to see Bavol versus better be They're the two best light heavyweights in the world. And I'll talk more about that later on in the pod with one of the questions and comments sent in by one of the listeners. It is time to stop the bullshit. It is time that Eddie Hearn... Get with Bob Arum and make this fight, whether the fight is in Russia, Dubai, Saudi Arabia, Montreal. Heck, put it in the Barclays Center. 
or Madison Square Garden because these guys are both Eastern Europeans and anybody who knows anything about New York City, specifically Brooklyn, knows that there's a massive Eastern European population in Brooklyn. Let's get it done. Let's get this fight done. These are the two best light heavyweights in the world, period, end of story. Now, on to the Ask Rob Silver portion of the podcast. For those who want their questions answered on the podcast, hashtag Ask Rob Silver on Twitter. I will answer each and every one of your questions. First question is from my buddy, Mark Anthony. Hey, what up, OG? I got a question for you. Do you remember the year Puerto Rico won the baseball classic and was undefeated? Well, Mark, Puerto Rico never won the baseball classic. They did make the finals of the last one and was undefeated until the final round in 2017 when they were defeated by the United States. Um, and you mentioned that you were upset that Marcus Stroman who once pitched for the Puerto Rican team, pitched for the United States team in 2017. Well, Marcus Stroman, is, his mother is Puerto Rican, his mother is black. Um, sort of like Carmelo Anthony, whose mother was black, father's Puerto Rican. Reggie Jackson, whose father's Puerto Rican, mother was black. Um, <clears throat> both my parents are Puerto Rican. I consider myself a black Puerto Rican because I am a brown-skinned Puerto Rican and uh, Mark, you and I both know about the uh, slave trade that went through Puerto Rico and the African blood that's in all of us that were born or came from Puerto Rico, whose parents came from Puerto Rico. I was born in New York City, but my parents were born in Puerto Rico. My mother was born in San Dulce. My father was born in Añasco. Puerto Rico, that... <coughs> excuse me, that... Let me clear my throat. That 2017 Puerto Rico team was loaded. You had Carlos Beltran at the end of his career. You had Carlos Correa and Felix Lind and um, Francisco Lindor on that team. You had the great Edwin Diaz, um, the best reliever in baseball right now, the best closer in baseball on that team. You had the legendary catcher from the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, uh, Yadier Molina was on that team. This team was loaded. <clears throat> Angel Pagan was on that team. You had a lot of great young talent on the team. Um, Seth Lugo was probably the best starting pitcher, and he, I believe he lost the final game against the United States. My, my, my memory is a little hazy, but that team was phenomenal. That team was phenomenal. You had one of the greatest defensive catchers of all time, who I believe is going to go to the Hall of Fame in Yadier Molina. You had the two greatest shortstops in Puerto Rico baseball history in Carrera and Lindor. You have the greatest closer in Puerto Rican baseball history in Edwin Diaz. They got routed 8 to nothing in the final game versus the United States. In the championship game, Puerto Rico was 7-0, and they looked like they could, but Marcus Stroman shut them down. Marcus Stroman, I believe, threw a no-hitter for the first six innings. Now, I know, Mark, you were like, well, he pitched for Puerto Rico. Why couldn't he pitch for Puerto Rico in this tournament? And they would have won the tournament had he pitched in the tournament. But, hey, it was up to him. He could go either way. You know, he's both an American and half Puerto Rican. I can't argue with him. He did what he wanted to do. And Marcus Stroman, great guy, fellow New Yorker like us. And um, 
great with community service, the whole nine. It's a real good dude. And that's one guy I wish the Mets would have kept. Anyway, that answers your question, big man. Now, on to the next question. From Big Malcolm. Big Malcolm, once again, with another great question. Give me your top five short notice late replacement wins. For example, Andy Ruiz versus Anthony Joshua, Bam Rodriguez versus Carlos Quadras. Well, those two make the list, Malcolm. Those two. Andy Ruiz was a huge underdog. He took the place of Jarrell Big Baby Miller, who had failed a, uh, this, I believe it was back in 2019, he failed a steroid PED um, exam. He failed his PED exam. He was he was found positive with PEDs. Andy Ruiz stepped in short notice and knocked out Anthony Joshua. Joshua beat him in a rematch, and now now there's talk of Andy Ruiz fighting Deontay Wilder, and that's an intriguing matchup. And I hope that fight takes place. And I hope that fight takes place at the Barclays Center so I can attend. Bam Rodriguez came out of nowhere and beat Carlos Quadras. Bam Rodriguez moved up to 115 despite the fact he was a junior flyweight slash flyweight. Moved up to 115, dominated Quadras in winning the fight. And has had, had an incredible 2022. And now is one of the best fighters at 115 alongside his brother Joshua Franco. I would love to see Bam Rodriguez fight a Juan Francisco Estrada or the legendary Chocolatito. Because right now I'd make him the favor of both guys. Yes, those are two of my top five. Let me give you the other. Th- let me give you the other three. Two involved Manny Pacquiao. When you talk about greatest performances by a substitute fighter, Manny Pacquiao in two thousand and one, his very first fight on HBO, he was a replacement for Enrique Sanchez. In fighting Lalo Ladwaba for Lalo Ladwaba's uh, alphabet soup version of the how you call it the uh, junior featherweight slash super bantamweight championship, he came out of nowhere, and this was June twenty third, two thousand one. He replaced he replaced Enrique Sanchez. And fought Lalo Ladwaba for Ladwaba's IBF 122-pound title. And he beat the hell out of Lalo and won by a six-round knockout. And then fast forward almost 20 years to the day, August 21st, 2021, Manny was scheduled to fight Errol Spence to unify the WBA IBF and WBC welterweight championships. Well, Errol Spence was forced to pull out because his eye examination has shown that he had cartilage damage and his career was in doubt. So in step, Jordanis Ugas, a few weeks before the fight was to occur, he took Errol Spence's place, and he gave Manny Pacquiao a 12-round thrashing. Like I mentioned in the Manny Pacquiao episode last week on his historical overview, it, re- it reminded me of the night almost 30 years prior when Sugar Ray Leonard took a 12-round hellacious beating from Terry Norris. Manny Pacquiao was washed up, but it didn't matter. 
Your Danis Ugas was younger, fresher, and in his prime. Manny way past his prime at the age of 42. So there goes two, to add to your two, Malcolm, of four of the greatest substitute wins by a substitute fighter in boxing history. Well, the fifth one, we go back to June of 1989. The WBC light heavyweight champion Dennis Andres was supposed to face Donnie Lalonde, but Lalonde pulled out a few weeks before the fight. In stepped Jeff Harding of Australia, and Jeff Harding won a miraculous 12-round come-from-behind knockout to win the WBC light heavyweight championship. So, in my opinion, the five greatest substitute boxers to win fights. The two you mentioned, Malcolm, Bam Rodriguez versus Carlos Quadras. Anthony Ruiz versus, I mean, Andy Ruiz versus Anthony Joshua. Manny Pacquiao versus Leila Laduaba. Jordanus Ugas versus Manny Pacquiao. And Jeff Harding versus Dennis Andres. Now... On to another question. Let me see who's this from. Oh, my buddy from Philly, uh, Rob Hill. Sugar Hill, Sugar Rob Hill, and congratulations, Rob. Your Philadelphia Eagles go to another Super Bowl. And who do I think is going to win the Super Bowl? The winner of the Super Bowl will have a starting black quarterback. All right, so there, there goes the answer to that question. If anybody wanted to know who I thought was going to win the Super Bowl, the team with the starting black quarterback. Now, on to Rob's question. OG, here's a non-boxing question. Was the 1986 Mets the greatest championship you've experienced as a sports fan? His happened early in his life with the 83 Sixers winning one for the Doc. Well, I'm going to give you my three, my top three uh Favorite championship teams won by my teams. The first was the 1983 Philadelphia 76ers. Anybody who knows me knows that my first NBA idol was Dr. J. Julius Irving because that was my father's favorite player. When I was nine years old in 1977, I saw my first NBA games, and that was the Sixers losing. Winning game two, in which you had the infamous brawl between Daryl Dawkins and Maurice Lucas, and then they got swept the next four games. They were up two games to none, lost the next four games to the Portland Trailblazers, and the Trailblazers won the 1977 NBA championship over my 76ers, the first team. Well, it was the second team I had started rooting for because a month earlier in April, I became a Mets fan because my father was a Mets fan. My father was a Mets fan. My father was a Sixers fan. So Dr. J was my first NBA idol. And in 1983, I was rooting heavily for the Sixers as they added Moses Malone that season. They went on to win, I think, 67 games, 66, 67 games that year. Um, only lost one playoff game, and that was a buzzer beater by the Milwaukee Bucks in the Eastern Conference Finals. They swept the Lakers, the Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, James Worthy Lakers. To win it all, Moses Malone won the Finals MVP. He was the NBA MVP. That was my third favorite championship of all time because I was a Sixers fan since 77. I didn't root for any football teams until I started attending Loyola University in New Orleans in August of 1986. And by 
October, I had become a full-blown Saints fan. So when the Saints won in February 2010, when they beat the Indianapolis Colts and Tracy Porter with that game-clinching touchdown interception in which the entire stadium and probably the entire state of Louisiana rose in unison, that was my second favorite championship. The Saints, who were who were known as the Aints before I became a fan, who from when I became a fan till 1993 had an incredible defense. You had the legendary Ricky Jackson. You had Vaughn Johnson, Pat Swilling, Sam Mills. Just incredible linebacking core. Maybe the greatest linebacking core other than the 86 Giants that ever lived. They couldn't win with Bobby Abear and Steve Walsh at quarterback. Those guys were garbage. Had they had a decent quarterback, they would have won it all. And then there was the lean years, the Aaron, um, the Aaron Brooks years, the Jeff Blake years, the Jim Everett years. Then they went and got Sean Payton and Drew Brees to right after Hurricane Katrina hit. And they resurrected a franchise hating and winning it all after the 2009 season with that great win against the Indianapolis Colts. People also remember they had that physical game versus the Minnesota Vikings in the NFC Championship game that they won in overtime in which they beat the hell out of Brett Favre. And I, you know, Brett Favre's a criminal today, but in that game he was, he showed a lot of fucking heart. The future criminal showed a lot of heart. So that's my second favorite. And my favorite, Rob, you hit it on the nail. The 86 Mets, my all-time favorite team, because it had my two all-time favorite baseball players in Daryl Strawberry and Doc Gooden. That 86 Mets team was an incredible team, and they kept you on the edge of your feet in almost every playoff game. That two, that 1986 NLCS versus the Houston Astros, still, still the greatest league championship series I've ever seen, and the drama. Down five to three, two outs, down to the last strike. Bottom of the ninth inning, game six, about to get eliminated by the Boston Red Sox. They miraculously come back. Mookie hits that ball, and the ball gets by Buckner. Ladies and gentlemen, even if Buckner feels that ball, Mookie was busting his ass down down the line, and he was the fastest New York Met at that point in time. He had the Mets' career stolen base record before Jose Reyes obliterated several years later. Buckner, with his broken down legs, was not going to beat Mookie to the bag. And the uh, the relief pitcher wasn't even near first base. So Mookie would have got a hit. I think they should have scored that a hit instead of an error. That being said, they win that game 6-5. to five, And then game 7, the loudest Shea Stadium ever was. 8-4 to four victory in which Daryl Strawberry hit a monster home run late in the game and he took a year to round the bases. Jose Orozco shuts them down in the ninth inning. Mets win their last, their second championship and the last championship. Man, I was 18 at the time. And who would have thought at that point in time that the Mets still haven't won another World Series since then? It's been almost 40 years. 37 to be exact. 
So great question, Rob. Great question. I love answering non-boxing questions on the podcast. One last question before I read a statement from a friend of mine. Hold on. Um, question from where's my man at? Oh, Long Tran from Australia, and he asks, Rob, my question for this week's podcast. Rob, have you trained in boxing? We all know you love boxing, but how come you didn't end up being a fighter? The reason I didn't end up being a fighter was my father was an amateur boxer. And my mother, when my mother was dating my father, they started dating at 14. He was boxing at that time that they met. And then he was, when he went to Comstack Correctional Facility in upstate New York, he won in 1970 the welterweight championship of that prison. They had tournaments in every division, welterweight, middleweight, light heavyweight, heavyweight, etc. He won the welterweight championship at 147 in Comstack back in 1970. When he came out of prison in 19, late 1971, early 1972, my memory's still shady because I was three years old at the time. He wanted nothing to do with boxing because boxing led him to his addiction was one of the reasons why he was addicted to drugs and he was kicking his heroin addict and he didn't have time. He had to work and provide for his family. And he was in a work release program first and finally got a full-time job as a juvenile delinquent counselor at the time, back in 1972. And he didn't want me or my brother to ever engage my younger brother, Charlie ever to engage in boxing because he knew the damage would be done. So while him and I watched the fights together and he taught me everything I know, my father taught me everything I knew about the ins and outs, the intricacies of what fighters do because he was a former fighter and he had a keen eye. And my father could tell the first time he saw a fighter if, he, if the guy was the real deal or he was going to be a fucking bum. I get all that from my father. He didn't want me, and my mother was dead sin against it. So that's why, long, I've never, ever gotten in the ring or even tried to box. I love the sport from afar, and I'm one of the few guys on the planet that doesn't have to have a participated in the sport to know the sport. I know exactly what, what a fighter needs to do to win. I know exactly the strategy he needs to install. And, and and what type of heart a, cha- a fighter needs to become champion. I was taught all that by my father. So, um, and I have never had any desire to step in the ring. And good thing, because I started losing my memory. I'm 50, I'll be 55 in May. I've, there's things I forget from time to time. Names and dates. Imagine if I was taking punches for the last 20 years. <laughs> all right. I've got a statement to read from my good friend, Luigi from England. And Luigi, I want to read this because this is a great great comment. He he DM'd me. Hi, Robert. After last night's fight, the Better BF Yard fight, here are my five favorite fights I'd like to see to tell me if you agree. Better BF versus Baval? Hell yes. Inouye versus Fulton, which looks like to be scheduled in May. Bud versus Spence, Canelo versus Benavidez, and Jesse Bam Rodriguez versus Sonny Edwards. In a perfect world, they would all come off. I put them in my order of preference. 
Better BF versus Bavol and Noe versus Fulton are definitely the two fights I want to see the most in 2023. Luigi, I agree with you. Those are the two best fighters in those weight classes, and those are the two best fights I think that could be made in boxing right now. Bud versus Spence is not happening. Um, I have muted on Twitter the words Bud, the words Crawford, the words er the words Errol, and the words Spence because I'm sick and tired of people on my timeline. Spence fans and Crawford fans fighting with each other, arguing over who's ducking who, who's a bitch, who's a coward. Like I've said a million times on this podcast, Errol Spence almost died from a car accident in which he hit the concrete floor face first. He was ejected from his car. He survived and he came back to fight at the same level before he got hurt. Terrence Bud Crawford got shot in the head. And survive If you can survive Near life experiences No man That you step in the ring with Is gonna make you fear For your life After you overcame Those life Almost ending Experiences and situations They're not afraid Of each other It all comes down To money It all comes down To what both men want I don't know the particulars And I don't give a fuck because neither one is fighting. You guys on Twitter fighting each other, calling each other names. That's some fucking eighth grade behavior. Stop the bullshit. All right. Stop arguing amongst each other. Stop calling each other names. I One guy I'm, uh, that that's on my timeline was like, oh, man, I think I'm, I'm going to deactivate my account because I'm tired of people making fun of Bud. No, big man. Don't even engage in it. Fuck them. Gun to my head if they fought tomorrow. I still can't tell you who's going to win. They're so evenly matched. I want this fight to happen. Will it happen? I don't know. And at this point in time, as each day passed by, I could give a fuck. If the fight don't happen, fuck them. They did it to each other. They did it to themselves, period. I don't put, the, put more blame on one camp or the other. To me, if both men wanted to fight, the fight happens. And I, from hearing both men speak, they want to fight. What held up the fight, I don't know, and I don't give a fuck. I want the fight, but the fight looks like it's not going to happen. Canelo versus Benavidez. I want this fight badly because, in my opinion, those are the two best 168-pound fighters in the world. Make Benavidez will bring the best out of Canelo. Canelo will bring out the best out of Benavidez. I wish this fight could be made. God damn, can when they make this fight. I'm tired of... The best not fighting the best. This is the best fighting the best if this happened. I, that fight's not happening this year, Luigi. I don't think so. Jesse Bam versus Sonny Edwards would be a phenomenal fight because you have a tremendous boxer. The guy I consider the second best defensive fighter in the world is Sonny Edwards against a great boxer puncher. And two young men in their prime. This is a 50-50 fight. Luigi, this is a great fucking question. This is a great comment. I appreciate you as always. These are five fights that I wish could be made. Um, two, I believe, will be made. The other three, we will see. Now, on to my 45th greatest fight. I mean, 10th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Let me get this article up and running. Okay. I mean, it's, it was an article I wrote on the Fight Game Media Network uh, website. 
My 10th greatest fighter of the last 45 years, my 45 greatest fighters of the last 45 years series, number 10, Salvador Sanchez. And I begin. The boxing world and fans were robbed of seeing Salvador Sanchez continue his career when he tragically died in a car accident on August 12, 1982, at the very tender age of 23. He had already to that point, in my father's opinion as well as my own, accomplished enough to be the greatest Mexican and featherweight fighter we ever saw. Since his fatal car accident 40 years ago, I still haven't seen a greater Mexican fighter or featherweight in the ring. In fact, despite dying at such a young age, he still did enough to be my 10th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Salvador Sanchez was an unknown contender from Mexico when a week after his 21st birthday, he battled WBC featherweight and future Hall of Famer Danny Lopez for Lopez's featherweight title on February 2nd, 1980. Right before the opening bell, my father mentioned that he had seen Sanchez fight a few times on Boxeo Desde Mexico, the long-time running boxing show on Channel 41, the, the Spanish International Network local affiliate. My father felt that Sanchez had a shot against Lopez because from what he saw, Sanchez was an excellent counterpuncher with great lateral movement. Lopez had become an Arturo Gaddy-like brawler since winning the title in 1976. Even though Lopez was only 27, he he had engaged in many wars that made him look 5 to 10 years older. Lopez's brawling style was no match for the young future master. Sanchez boxed rings around Lopez and landed combination after combination, resulting in a 13th round stoppage to become the WBC 126-pound champion. This was a complete virtuoso masterpiece by Sanchez. After successfully defending his title via 15-round decision against Ruben Castillo on April 12, 1980, Sanchez gave Lopez a rematch. My father and I knew Lopez had no shot at the rematch as he was a shot fighter. On June 21, 1980, Sanchez gave another virtuoso performance, landing at will against Lopez before the fight was once again stopped in the 13th round. His performance against Lopez was a warning to the boxing world. The best was yet to come. Sanchez successfully defended his title three more times before signing to fight legendary 122-pound Puerto Rican legend Wilfredo Gomez on August 21, 1981. Gomez was the reigning WBC Super Bantamweight champion with a superlative record, 32 wins, no losses, one draw, all 32 wins by knockout. Gomez was a genius boxer puncher who had, in his offensive arsenal, one of the greatest right crosses in boxing history. Both men were to get a then 126-pound fight record, $1 million each. It was, and still is, the biggest match in the famed Puerto Rico-Mexico rivalry. Promoter Don King coined the fight appropriately, the Battle of the Little Giants. That night, my father took us to see the fight on closed circuit at the South Bronx Puerto Rico Theater. We both loved Gomez and felt his in-and-out movement could cause Sanchez problems and eventually knock him out. Gomez came out firing in the first round. Every one of his punches had murderous intent. Sanchez calmly boxed from the outside, and he, being one of the greatest counterpunchers of all time, used Gomez's aggression to his advantage, landing his smooth-ass silk left jab at will. Towards the end of the round, Gomez had Sanchez trapped against the ropes when he walked into a booming left hook. Gomez went down and both my father and I yelled at the same time, Get up, Gomez! Luckily for Gomez, this happened at the end of the round or he would have been knocked out by the cerebral Sanchez. The next three rounds saw tremendous action as Gomez had a look of desperation coming out of his corner for the second round. He abandoned his his excellent jab and stalked and several times was able to trap Sanchez against the ropes. 
Sanchez, one of the calmest fighters I've ever seen, successfully fought off the ropes and would outland Gomez while the two were inside. When the fight was outside, Sanchez dominated with his outstanding jab and counterpunching. Sanchez was five foot six and Gomez stood a half inch shorter, but in the ring that night, Sanchez looked considerably taller. After the end of the fourth round, Gomez's right eye was beginning to slow, uh, was beginning to close, and his cheekbones were swelling badly. Gomez was having an excellent fifth round until once again, late in the round, Sanchez, went on, while on the ropes, stunned Gomez with a sharp right cross left hook combination. Gomez staggered back to his corner with his right eye all but closed. The fans in attendance at the Puerto Rico Theater, along with us, were eerily silent. My father wanted to leave, but I refused. I was still hoping that Gomez would find a miracle. There were no miracles that night. After taking a thorough beating around six and seven, Gomez was hurt by Sanchez with a devastating right cross in the eighth round and almost knocked Gomez out the ring after Sanchez landed several uncontested shots. Gomez got, gamely got up at the count of five, but referee Carlos Padilla wisely stopped the fight. I couldn't sleep that night as my fellow Puerto Rican took a beating and lost, but I had gained admiration and respect for the man who beat him. That was the night I saw the greatest Mexican fighter I've ever seen put on a magical display of boxing. After a pair of, success, after a pair of successful defenses, Sanchez made his Master Square Garden debut on July 21st, 1982. When my father bought tickets for us to see Sanchez, the man who broke our collective hearts a year prior when he knocked out with Fredo Gomez, he was originally scheduled to fight an unknown fighter named Mario Miranda. I didn't want to go. I had never heard of Miranda and knew he didn't have a shot in hell to beat the great Sanchez. My father kept hassling me to go, so I half-heartedly agreed to go. Then, a week before the fight, Miranda pulled out because of an injury. I figured the fight would be postponed to a later date instead. Don King brought in a replacement fighter from Ghana, Azuma Nelson, an even lesser-known fighter. Up until the night of the fight, I really didn't care about attending the fight. An hour before the fight, after being constantly harassed by my father, I decided to go with him to Masters Garden to see the fight. It turned out to be the greatest fight I've ever seen live in my lifetime. Not only was Nelson a complete unknown, he had only 13 career fights. I told my father this guy had no business being in the ring with an experienced great like Sanchez. Although at 24, Nelson was a year older than Sanchez, his 13 fights paled in comparison to the legendary Mexican's 45 fights. Sanchez was also making the ninth defense of his WBC featherweight title. I was expecting a short main event. My father, my father explained to me that night that every African he ever saw fight, Cornelius Bose Edwards, Dick Tiger, Ayub Kaluli, etc., were tough warriors who always came to fight. As great as Sanchez was, my father stated that Nelson had one advantage. Sanchez didn't know what type of fighter he was facing in Nelson. Nelson knew exactly what kind of fighter he was facing in Sanchez. Despite dealing with the unknown, Sanchez dominated the first three rounds by staying outside and landing several crisp combinations. Late in the third round, Sanchez stunned Nelson with a right cross right down the middle. Nelson, despite losing the first three rounds, kept coming and landed some of his own hard right crosses. Rounds four and five saw Nelson finally cut off the ring and lure Sanchez into a slugfest. Nelson landed several cracking shots to the head and body. Sanchez landed several shots of his own, but was unable to keep the relentless African off of him. When the fifth round ended, my father and I both came to the conclusion that Nelson was the real deal. The furious pace continued in the next round. Sanchez was able to outslug Nelson in a wild sixth round. Then at the beginning of the seventh round, Sanchez stunned Nelson with a short left hook. Seconds later, Sanchez knocked Nelson down with another left hook. 
Nelson got up at the count of five and despite being hurt, continued to engage Sanchez in the slugfest. In the eighth and ninth rounds, Sanchez once again stunned Nelson with several left hooks and completely dominated both rounds. Sanchez was back to staying outside and was landing at will against Nelson. Both Nelson's eyes were swelling and he was bleeding from the mouth. Despite all the punishment he was taking, Nelson kept coming like a Sherman tank. The next three rounds saw Nelson storm back. In the 10th round, he out-hustled the tiring Sanchez and kept coming. In the 11th round, he once again he once again engaged Sanchez in several exchanges and late in the round stunned Sanchez for the first time with a booming left hook. It was the first time my father and I had ever seen. It was the first time my father and I had ever seen Sanchez hurt. Nelson again hurt Sanchez in the 12th round, this time with a wicked right cross. We couldn't believe what we were saying. What we were seeing. Nelson had a legit shot at pulling off a major upset. The 13th round was just an all-out war. Both men punished each other with one bomb after another. Then at the very end of the round, Sanchez once again hurt Nelson with a left hook. The action continued in the 14th round at a frantic pace. This time, Nelson landed a huge combination at the bell that seemed to hurt Sanchez. When that round ended, my father had compared this fight to the thriller Manila between Ali and Frazier. The 15th round was sure to be a great finish to a remarkable fight. Nelson's face going into the last round looked like he had been beaten with a baseball bat. He was bleeding from the mouth and both his eyes were almost completely shut. He came out reckless and was getting battered by Sanchez with one hard combination after another. Once again, Sanchez badly stunned Nelson with a ferocious left hook. After a few more hard shots, Nelson went down in the corner. Amazingly, he got back up before the count of two. Nelson was completely fatigued and in serious trouble. Sanchez batted him for another 10 seconds before referee Tony Perez wisely called a halt to the, back, to the fight. The Master Square Garden crowd gave both fighters a standing ovation. My father and I left the garden that night feeling we had seen a piece of boxing history. It was even bigger, it was even bigger than what we thought. Sanchez's work in the ring that night, even while facing adversity, was hypnotic. Considering the incredible career Nelson would end up having as the greatest African fighter of all time, Sanchez proved his greatness that night. Exactly three weeks later, on August 12, 1982, Sanchez was in a fatal car crash while driving his Porsche in Mexico. At the age of 23, Sanchez was already the greatest Mexican fighter of all time and on his way to becoming the greatest featherweight of all time. My father said he would have beaten all the great featherweights that had before it. In my 45 years of watching boxing, Sanchez's death was the biggest tragedy to the Sanchez's death was in my opinion the biggest tragedy to the to befall the sport I love. His death robbed of robbed us of potential fights versus Julio Cesar Chavez and Hector Camacho. That being said, he still did more than enough to warrant his ranking as the 10th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Ladies and gentlemen, until next week, be blessed. And be a blessing.